learn, but the thing is, is that even in the morning, I watch, you know, like a shul yeah, one in, um... Okay, let's get oh, started here. Right. I just want to make sure I have the right, get ready for that other thing, too. Yeah, here it is, the link. Okay, good afternoon, and let's begin to those that are here and those that are there. Today we're going to talk about the interesting phenomena of Torah, that of not only the written Torah, but even more about the phenomena of the oral law. Where did it come from? Why is it the way it is? And what's going on? So I'll start with the famous story I'm sure you all know and heard once before about the argument that happened in the synagogue and uh, all of a sudden the, uh, there was an argument, what was the law of last week's Torah reading? If they stand by the Ten Commandments or should they sit by the Ten Commandments? And they decided, you know what, let's go ask the oldest uh, congregant. He'll tell us, should we stand or should we sit? Because some were saying they should stand and some were saying they should sit. So they go to the oldest uh, congregant and they ask him, let me ask you a question. What is the custom of this synagogue? Do we stand by the Ten Commandments or do we sit by the Ten Commandments? So he says, let me ask you, what did you do this week? So he said, this week? Some people were standing and some people were sitting. So the old fellow says, that's exactly the tradition. Some people stand and some people sit. So every person, if we look in our life, and we start to look at the laws of the Torah and the mitzvahs, we find there are so many different laws that God has given us. 613 commandments, but within those 613 commandments, there are so many different details of those commandments. Every single part of our life can find some type of relevance or some law that's applied to it. But if we look in the actual Torah reading, and if we look in the actual five books of Moses, it is seldom to find many of those laws. Even more so, even the details of the laws, the question is, where do the rabbis get the right to be able to make so many laws in the name of God? If a person wants to be able to follow what God says, and with the laws that God tells us, that God gave us the laws, where do we find so many laws? Is it what God gave us, or is it what the rabbis gave us? The first thing we notice, and you ask any person, you'll see that there's a difference between, you go into an Ashkenazic synagogue, they have certain customs. You go into a Svartic synagogue, they have different customs. You go into this type of synagogue, they have that kind of customs. Let's take, for example, on Passover. Sephardic Jews eat rice. Ashkenazic Jews don't eat rice. Which one is it? Does God speak in many different voices? Did Moses eat rice on Passover? Which one did he do? Not only that, when we look in a synagogue, in the actual works of the synagogue, you'll notice that most of the things that we have today, even the very fact of a synagogue, doesn't say anywhere in the Torah. The concept of a synagogue doesn't say in the Torah. There was the Holy Temple. Prayer barely says in the Torah. Even the very fact that we have three times a day that we pray and the language that we pray and the prayers that we do say are not in the Torah explicitly as well. So the question that we have is, where do the rabbis get, A, the right, and the ability to derive all these laws that we know of today from the Torah? And why is it so important and why we're discussing it today? Is because we're going to see this clearly from our Torah reading. And greater question is not only where do the rabbis get the right to be able to learn all these laws, but if God in his infinite wisdom wanted all these laws that we should be applying them, why didn't God say them himself? 
Why doesn't it say it clearly in the Torah? So in this week's Torah reading, there are about 53 different laws that are mentioned. And if you look at these different laws that are mentioned, the Torah begins this week's Torah reading by saying, mishpatim, and these are the laws. When using the terminology mishpatim, laws, is telling us that these are obvious laws, these are laws that pertain to the every single human being, and these are not laws which are necessarily tradition-based, these are laws that are simple ethical values of how a person has to deal with one and his friend. For example, just from the few laws that are mentioned in this week's Torah reading, for example, from the law in the verse where it tells us about returning your lost item, the entire tractate of Baba Metziah, which is a long volume that tells us about different laws pertaining to finding a lost item and how we have to deal with it, is based on a few verses in this week's Torah reading. From a few verses in this week's Torah reading, we have the entire tractate of Baba Kama, which entails and details the laws pertaining damages one to another. So that means just from a few verses in this week's Torah reading, we have three major tractates in the Talmud that discuss all these laws on pages and pages and pages of analytical discussion. But what is it? Where do we see it from? And probably it's based on one of the greatest uh, uh, verses that are mentioned in this week's Torah reading, which in itself is in a quandary. Three times in this week's Torah reading, the Torah uses the terminology, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. If somebody injured another person, that person will pay for what that person damaged. And the Torah uses the terminology, if the damage happens, you'll give one soul for another soul, one eye for another eye, tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a leg for a leg, a wound for a wound, and so on. And the same thing is brought in the book of Leviticus, and again the same statement is brought in the book of Deuteronomy. What does the Torah say clearly? That if you puncture somebody's eye, your eye gets punctured. You knock off somebody's hand, if you literally read the Torah, your hand has to be chopped off. We know clearly, and right away Rashi in the commentary explains that this is not the case, and what is done, you pay for the value of what that eye is. So for example, if you go into the marketplace, you see what would be the value of a person working, lack one eye, or lack one foot, or lack one hand, that's the value that has to be given. So we clearly see that the rabbis do not learn the verse for its simple interpretation, but the rabbis right away find a interpretation that should make more relevant sense, so to speak, in the actual way. And the question is, why is it that if the Torah wanted to tell me I'm paying the value of the eye or the value of the hand and the value of the foot, the Torah could have said it clearly. So besides for the fact that, of course, it makes more sense from a logical perspective what the rabbis are saying, because if you want to be able to uh, make sure that the person you injured is actually feeling better about it by puncturing out the other guy's eye and not getting anything from it. It's just a matter of revenge. But clearly, if the Torah wanted to go and say that this is what it means, an eye for an eye, that means money paying for the eye, why didn't the Torah say it clearly? Now, of course, we know that this is what we know that it means money for an eye, and it doesn't literally mean an eye is something that has been passed down from tradition to tradition, from generation to generation, that it means money and not literally an eye. And in fact, Maimonides, when he wants to talk about the authenticity of tradition that we have today, uh, Maimonides explains that there are many things that the rabbis have been gotten by tradition, 
And the proof in the pudding is that if you look at it, that from the time of when the Torah was given until the end of the Talmud, there is no other opinion about it. For example, there is nobody ever in the Talmud to suggest, or in the Mishnah, or in any generation, that one should pay an eye for an eye, and it actually means monetary value. Same ideas when the Torah says a beautiful fruit that you have to take on the festival of Sukkot. There is nobody that denies that says it's an esro, which says it's something else other than an esro. And the same thing about the myrtle, and the same thing about tefillin, and many other laws that are written, so to speak, in general terms in the Torah, we find clearly a tradition passed down from Moses all the way throughout the Talmud, what that tradition of what it's meant to be. So what we have over here is, number one, is that the way we understand many basic understandings and meanings and explanations in the Torah are based on tradition all the way from Moses and Mount Sinai. Which in itself is a question. Where do we see that tradition? Where do we see that tradition, that explanation, passed down from generation to generation? Not only that, you will not find throughout the entire Torah a verse that says, by the way, I gave all the explanations to Moses. If it was all the interpretations were given to Moses from Moses and Mount Sinai, why doesn't the Torah tell us? The Torah is written gray. All the explanations were given to Moses and Mount Sinai. In fact, that was actually the argument of the Karaites, the Tzedukim, the Maisusim, all different types of people of different generations who were literalists. And they said, we are going to study the Torah for a literal interpretation. We're not going to go by the uh, oral interpretation. And they did not want to listen to the rabbi's interpretation. And said, because we go by a literal interpretation. So where does the oral law get its validity from? Even more so. The oral law is not by, doesn't just stop by the fact of giving us tradition of laws of how we have to follow the law. But the oral law also extrapolates and explains little details seemingly in the law. For example, the Torah tells us, do not do any work on Shabbat. Any work on Shabbat. Now, how do I know what any work means? doesn't mean schlepping a table, schlepping a bench. What is, how do I define work? So the Talmud explains how do I define work, being that Moses said this, when it was the construction of the tabernacle. So work is defined by the 39 cardinal laws that they used when they were building the tabernacle. But if you were to look inside the actual Torah, there are only two laws that are mentioned in the Torah concerning the Shabbos. Carrying and igniting a fire. All other things are included in do not make, do not do any work on Shabbat. The rabbis then extrapolated what does it mean, any work on Shabbat. Work is defined by work that was done in the Holy Temple by building the tabernacle. But all this was given to the Jewish people by the very fact of tradition and there are 13 elements of how the Torah, so to speak, is structured and how we learn the different laws. And even those elements or those rules were given by tradition. So what is it? How then do we get to the oral law that we have today? How do the rabbis extrapolate from the written law to be able to get the oral law? In fact, even more so, the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud quotes that anything that a diligent student studies today is automatically given from Mount Sinai. Now, how is that possible? What does that mean? The first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, explains a seemingly example to it, a metaphor. And he says as follows. He says, the written law is compared to a father, while the oral law is compared to a mother. The written law is what gives the energy, while the oral law is the cultivator. 
That means what we have in the written law is the basics. And because it has to be able to be extrapolated and relevant to every generation, the oral law, the traditions are the ones that cultivate it and bring it and bringing God's message and making it pertinent and extrapolating it and explaining it and making it relevant for every time and every age. Meaning, the same way, when you look at a child, the child, though it developed in the mother's womb for nine months, but it only came there because the father had to implement the seed to be able to get that child. The same idea is also when we have when we look at the oral law. The written law is the 365 negative commandments and the 248 positive commandments. Those are the seedlings. The rabbis then extrapolated, cultivated, and applied it to be able to work for every single generation. In fact, one of the commentators and codifiers in Jewish law take it a step further. And says, when we make the blessings on the Torah, it says, And his life he is given and implanted within us. This written law is like the seedling. And the branch and the trees and all the fruit that come from it is the oral law. This is also seen as a story that's told in the Talmud. That once, when Moses was in Mount Sinai, he saw an image an image of Rabbi Akiva, who was going to be 2,000 years later, was studying and extrapolating every single verse and letter and shape of the letter to be able to learn out mountains of laws from it. Moses said, what is this? How come it seems like that he knows the Torah better than I? Until he said, God told him, listen into what he's saying. And one of the students asked him, how do you know this law? And Rabbi Akiva said, this is the law because we've gotten it and passed down by tradition from Moses on Mount Sinai. And with that, Moses calmed down. What did Moses see? That this is not new ingenuity. This is not new geniuses coming up with new laws in 2,000 years. On the contrary, every single law that the rabbis made for the next 3,000 years were based on the actual verbiage and the actual traditions that Moses gave on Mount Sinai. That means everything the rabbis have done and extrapolated and explained and interpreted were all from Moses on Mount Sinai. Which over here the question is, even more so, we can see that many verses, reading the Torah, if anybody reads the Torah in any simple way, we'll see that it's unbelievable that you cannot read it without these interpretations. And the question over here is, why did God set up the system as such? That people can speak in God's name, so to speak, and are partners with God in the revelation of the Torah. What happened here? Why can't we just study the Torah on its own instead of having to come onto the words of the sages? Why is the Torah written so gray and so a lack of understanding? And as we can see, and as we mentioned this a few weeks ago, even when there was great debates in the Talmud, and one wanted to show and say from the heaven, it looks like that this is the right interpretation. Their Torah was given to the human being to understand, appreciate, and learn that it should be applicable into the way they understand it. And the rabbis, of course, based on the anchored traditions, have that ability to explain it, that it should be relevant. But why is it that way? So if we look into our question that we mentioned in the beginning, for example, in this week's Torah reading, this week's Torah reading tells us an eye for an eye. Why does the Torah say the words an eye for an eye? Why couldn't the Torah just state clearly, money, if you hurt somebody, why does it have to say an eye for an eye? And there are many different explanations. We'll just touch upon a few little ones, little cute ones. The Garden of Vilna says the reason why the Torah uses the terminology, an eye for an eye, because if you look at the word, 
ayin tachas ayin, which means I underneath an I, literally, is because if you take the words ayin, take the next letter that's after each one. After ayin in the Hebrew alphabet comes pei, after yud comes kaf, after pe, after nun comes samach, which makes the Hebrew word kesef. That an I under an I, meaning what's the next letter, would be money instead of the I. That's one way of saying it. Rabbi Cook, one of the first chief rabbis of Israel, once has said as follows. And he based it on something which is said in the Tanya, as we mentioned before, that the written laws compared to the father, while the oral laws compared to the mother. And therefore, when the father says something, the mother needs to, so to speak, reinforce it. And over here we see that the Torah is telling us the severity that if a person knocks out somebody's eye, don't think, ah, I'm just going to pay for it. Big deal, big deal. You know, people say, well, no, no, no big deal if you can pay with it for money. So therefore the Torah wants to show how severe it is, and therefore it says when you knock out somebody else's eye, it's as if your eye is getting knocked out. It's not just something you can just pay off and that's it and it's all good and fine. It's not just something you can pay money for and the problem goes away. Throwing money at it is not going to solve it, and therefore the Torah doesn't use the terminology of money because the Torah wants you to know the severity of what it is. They say a story about the great rabbi, the founder of the yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin, Rabbi Meir Shapiro, who went around fundraising for his yeshiva. And he needed to be able to fundraise for the pay to eat in the yeshiva building that was in the Lublin. So he came to one wealthy individual to ask him for a donation, and it was the middle of the cold winter, and he knocks on the door of the wealthy individual, and the wealthy guy says, come inside, what, what do you need, Rabbi? He says, come out, Mr. So-and-so, come outside, I just got to talk to you just for a moment. The guy comes outside, and the rabbi starts telling him a whole wonderful interpretation of that week's story, and he says, Rabbi, what's the problem? It's cold outside. He says, ah, just by the way, I'm here because I need money for the yeshiva today to pay for heat. He says, oh, sure, no problem, I'll give you a donation. So he says, but Rabbi, why couldn't you come inside and tell me that? He says, because if I would come inside into your house where you're sitting all warm and cozy, you would never even know what it means to sit in the cold. I needed you to come outside, recognize that it's cold and be in the shoes of somebody else and only then would you come to feel and understand and appreciate what you're giving for and why it's important to your donation. This is what the Torah is telling us as well. The Torah is telling us over here, don't think that over here it's just, okay, I'll pay it up. It's just a matter of money. I damage somebody, I'll just pay my bills. You have to realize that when you injure somebody, you're injuring a person on what it costs and what it hurts and the effect that it has. And therefore the Torah uses the terminology of how it should radiate and understand an individual. With this we can now understand why we find, back to our original question, where do we find that the rabbis have that ability to explain the Torah, and why did God make it that the rabbis and the traditions later on should continue to extrapolate the Torah and not depend on its own intuition and write everything clearly. And this is really because, very clearly as we can see, every single verse that one reads in the Torah, you pick a verse in the Torah, you will not be able to understand that verse without first having the oral law. Pick a verse, whether it's the mitzvah of tefillin, and you should bind it onto your hand, which it doesn't say what you should bind, or you should write it on your door, it doesn't say how you should write it, 
or whether it should be about the circumcision. Where do you have to circumcise yourself? doesn't say clearly. It just says the foreskin. Where's the foreskin? What kind of foreskin? The other times that the Torah uses the terminology of foreskin, it says foreskin of your heart, foreskin of your lips. So what does it mean? Or the same thing as we mentioned before, doing any work, what is considered work. And the Kuzari explains that over here as we see, that when Moshe uses the terminology, this month is your month. He could have told them that you're sitting amongst the monks of the Egyptians or the Kazdim that were sitting at the time. But he doesn't say that. He says it's your month. Meaning God is waiting for you to make it a month and that's when he agrees. What does this mean? As the first Chabad Rebbe writes in the Tanya, it says as follows. Within every single mitzvah that God has given us, there's a deeper meaning and connection that we are creating with God. And therefore, the Torah doesn't state clearly what the directive is, because when a Jew utilizes his own intellect and then connects it with the intellect of the Torah by interpretation and extrapolation of the sages, what he is then doing is not only doing the act, but he's connecting the emotionally as well. There was once this unbelievable example that was given by a metaphor by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Cheskel Sofer said, he says, imagine a guy loses a suitcase full of diamonds, right in the middle of the diamond district. And he makes an announcement, who lost the diamond, a case full of diamonds? Of course, everybody's going to come and say, hey, it's my diamonds. But what happens? Everybody comes over and says, this is your diamonds? Care, it's a locked suitcase, open it up. Hmm. All the people that come running can't open it. Who's the right owner? Only the guy that knows how to open up the lock. The same thing is also when it comes to the interpretation of the Torah. Hmm. Today's day and age especially, there are so many different people claiming that they are the true Jews or the true owners of the Bible. The new Bible, the New Testament, this and all that or the other that came up. God foresaw that there's going to be generations and generations of people that are going to try to cheat the Jewish people of their heritage. That means there are going to be people that are going to claim that they are the rightful owners of the Torah. So what does God say? If you're the rightful owners of the Torah, what's its tradition? Explain it. Tell me what it says here. And who are the only ones that are going to be able to explain it? Are the Jewish people. Who are the only ones that have the proper explanation and a thorough interpretation with all its laws and meaning are only the Jewish people. And that's why any other religion that wants to claim to the Bible, it's full of hypocrisies and contradictions. Why? Because they don't have the proper interpretation as the Jewish people have, which was given down by tradition from Moses and Mount Sinai. Because of that, God wants us to be able to have a thorough understanding and appreciation for what the Torah is all about. To be able to decide and decipher and see that we can extrapolate from the Torah what's relevant to us as it's rooted in our traditions to see that we are the rightful owners of the Torah. But then here the Hasidic interpretation takes it a step further. And over here the Hasidic interpretation takes it a step further. And I'll first tell you the following story. There was a fellow, his name was Dr. Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Weinrich. He was the uh, executive vice president of the Orthodox Union for many years. And while he was in his 40s, he was having a little bit of a midlife crisis while he was a rabbi in Baltimore. And he was, uh, didn't know what to do. Some questions he asked. 
So he decided he's going to call anonymously to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's office and to see what he can do to ask for some help and see work some direction. The secretary picks up the phone and Rabbi Weinreb anonymously tells the secretary his initial and he hears, Rabbi Weinreb hears that in the background the Rebbe picks up the phone as well. And the Rebbe is listening in on this conversation. And the Rebbe says to the secretary, tell him that there's a Jew that's living in Maryland by the name of Weinrib, and he should contact him. Now don't forget, Dr. Weinrib, Rabbi Weinrib, did not tell the Rebbe his name on the phone. He didn't know who he was. There's no caller ID back then. And, of course, the secretary gives over the message. Rabbi Weinrib, listening to this, says, maybe they didn't hear me properly. He said, I'm calling, I got an issue. He says, so the secretary repeats what the Rebbe said. There's a fellow by the name of Weinrib in Maryland. Speak to him. Finally, this Rabbi Weinrib says, I am Weinrib. <laughs> so the Rebbe says, at times, a person needs to speak to himself to really find out who he is. You have to dig deep within yourself to find your true essence. What the Rebbe was telling this individual was, I'm not going to solve your problems. The only person who can solve your problems is you yourself. Why? Because if I solve your problems, then your problems are not solved. I just gave you a band-aid to cover your problems because it's, you didn't own it. It's not yours. In order for your problems to be solved, you need to take ownership of it and only then can you solve it. Same idea is when we come into our question that we spoke about. In every single thing in the world, we have the possibility to grow, to extrapolate, to learn, and to, and to become better because of it. But if I tell you to do it, then you're doing it, not because it's yours, but because I told you to do it. When God gave us the commandments in the Torah, God wants us to follow the commandments, but he also is looking for partners in God's creation. He doesn't want just singular robots following commands. He wants people who are just like God to become partners in the creation and the development of the Torah. And therefore, what God did was, He says, listen here, I'm going to write the Torah, so to speak, a gray book. And throughout the ages, and the sages are going to develop and extrapolate throughout the ages, based, of course, on the traditions that were given to them at Mount Sinai. And guess what? They're going to have varied opinions. In fact, as the Talmud uses the terminology that there was once concerning a, deb a debate in the Talmud, and they asked on high, what is the decision? Is it to the right? Is it to the left? And the voice from heaven came down and said, there are 50 opinions that said it should be kosher, and 50 opinions that said it shouldn't be kosher. You find the majority, and whatever that majority is, God will follow as well. What was God saying? As in the terms of the Torah, they're both the Word of God. How can it be the both the Word of God? Because God is able to tolerate opposites. Part of the development of the Torah is to be able to see differences. Part of the development of the Torah is that there can be varied opinions. There can be Ashkenazim. There can be Svaradim. There can be varied opinions. As long as they're both rooted in the proper traditions of the Torah. So when a person sees a debate in the Torah, all of the Talmud is full of a debate. You can't find one page on the Talmud where there isn't a debate. It's because the debate is the shape of making you, the human being, part of the Torah. And therefore, the desire for all of us is 
that God wants us to be, make us the partners of the Torah. And the more we study the Torah, we become partners with God in the creation of the Torah. And following last week's talk, where we talk about when God gave the Jewish people the Torah on Mount Sinai, its purpose and reason was that the material world should become uplifted and spiritual. Today continues that concept, that when God gives us the Torah, He gives it to us a gray book, not clear cut, and gives it most of it in traditions in the oral law, so that we can be part of the development of the Torah, this way fusing physical and spiritual together. Every single one of us has to be able to learn, to work hard, to be able to appreciate and understand the words of the Torah. And in fact, if you look at the words of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy is beginning where Moses is starting to talk on his own. It's said in first person, not in third person, like the rest of the Torah. Because Moshe himself begins that concept of oral tradition to the Jewish people. If you take the first word of the Torah, I'm sorry, the, if you take each one of the letters of the Torah, if you take the first word of the Mishnah, is men, you take the first word of the Aseret Hadibrot, of the Ten Commandments, is Aleph, and you take the first word of the Talmud, is tough, makes the word Emes true. From the Ten Commandments, through the Mishnah, through the Talmud, even with all the debates, it's one solid truth being developed, revealed, and cultivated through the generations. Because God wants us to be part in this development. In, and this way, every single one of us can be an owner and feel that the Torah is ours. When we understand the Torah, when we look at the Torah, make it something, a development of our own tradition, and realize that this is not something as a robotic, but I'm asking the questions, doing the answers, and making my research, and making the development of the Torah real to me, based on the traditions and the way the rabbis have gave, come to me, as we mentioned before what the Jerusalem Talmud says, everything that a diligent student is already given from Mount Sinai. This was all preordained because we're following those steps. But it's up to us to reveal it and to bring it to the surface. Everything was already given at Mount Sinai. But as the generations come, we reveal more and keep on revealing more and extrapolating more within those realms and this way making us partners with the Torah. So in short, why did God set the system this way? Because he wants us to be partners with him in developing and learning the Torah. So every time we study Torah, we're not just studying some intellectual exercise, but we're actually partnering with God, in developing and cultivating the Torah, making this world a holy place for God. Thank you.